Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my favorite snacks with some gut health benefits, Fancy Plants. The team of free-thinking plant innovators at Fancy Plants have stopped at nothing to bring together the best plant ingredients to make your taste buds sing. There are three wonderful products within the Fancy Plants range, which you can find in the chilled dessert section of the yogurt aisle at Woolworths and in the chilled health section at Coles. The Chia Pod is a cafe-style Chia pudding, which can be eaten on the go. The Chocolate Silky Pot is smooth as silk and seriously addictive. And the Vanilla Rice Pud is a plant-based twist on an old favorite rice pudding. All three options in the Fancy Plants range are a source of fiber, prebiotics for your gut health, and calcium too. To find out more, head to fancyplants.com or look for them in your local supermarket. Today's special guest to talk all things gut health is Megan Rossi, who is one of the most influential gut health specialists worldwide. She's a practicing dietitian and nutritionist with an award-winning PhD in gut health. She is also the leading research fellow at King's College London, where she's currently investigating nutrition-based therapies in gut health. Megan is also the founder of the Gut Health Clinic, where she leads a team of gut specialist dietitians who see clients all over the world. Today, we have a special treat of having Megan on the podcast to give us a gut health update straight from the lab. We chat about why your gut health is so important, some new and exciting research from the lab, updates in the areas of leaky gut and managing SIBO. We also talk about personalized nutrition with gene testing and all about artificial and natural sweeteners. To end the podcast, we do a quick listener question round where we talk about antibiotics, coffee, dairy, food intolerance test kits, and COVID. So grab a pen and paper because you're going to need it as Megan dives deep into everything gut health for us today. Welcome Megan to the podcast. It's so nice to have you back on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Show. It's an absolute pleasure to be back, Leanne. I'm so excited. And you are just an Aussie thriving over there in the UK. So can you let our listeners know how you came to be a gut health expert living your best life in the UK? (laughs) It certainly wasn't something that I ever expected to, you know, go abroad and to get into the research world. I actually grew up on a farm, Leanne, in, in Cairns, just outside of Cairns in Australia. So you know, I I didn't really have that as an ambition, but good gut health was certainly inherent to my upbringing, you know, playing in the dirt, eating fresh fruit uh, and veg each day. But actually, it wasn't until I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics when I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And I I really hated the gut initially. I was like, you know, it, it put her through the chemo, the surgery, and obviously took her life. So I had a, a bit of a grudge against the gut. And then I started working as a dietitian, both in the hospital setting with all different types of conditions, from kidney disease to heart disease to mental health issues. But also I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic Synchronized Swimming Team. And what I found so striking is despite people coming from all different backgrounds, they're all coming to me complaining of the gut. And I was like, God, this organ literally is stalking me. And that was around 2010, where there hadn't been a whole lot of gut health research. It just started to kind of make its way into the research arena. And I thought, you know what, I owe it to my grandma and to my patients and clients to find out more about this organ. So that's when I embarked on a PhD. And it was really that PhD where we looked at targeting 
um, the gut through the right nutrition that showed that actually we could improve people's lives in very real and often surprising ways well beyond the gut just by targeting the gut, had this systemic effect. And after that PhD, I knew, you know, if I was ever going to have my impact in the world and really help people, it was going to be via the gut. So after that, I was like, how can I continue the research? So I looked around the world who was doing the most innovative gut health research, and it was King's College in London. Uh, so here I am, eight years later, stuck here, uh, continuing to work as a research fellow. And living your best life, I must say. You're doing, you're making all of us Aussies very proud. <laughs> Thank you. Now let's, for our listeners, give a little bit of a refresh about how and why the gut is so incredibly important. Because I always say to my clients, good health starts in your gut. And a lot of them say, oh, well, I don't have gut health symptoms. My gut's fine. And I say to them, well, maybe you don't have symptoms, but it's perhaps not actually optimized. So why is our gut so incredibly important with or without us actually experiencing symptoms? Yeah, well, yeah. And I think that's a really important point because historically, you know, we always thought if you didn't have any gut symptoms, clearly you must have a fine gut health. Like, you know, it's as simple as that. But actually, thanks to the research, we've now understood there's really three key reasons why every single person, whether you've got issues, gut issues or not, should start to focus on the gut. The first one is, you know, quite an obvious one is digestion. So if we don't have a good gut health lining, no matter how healthy the the food we put into our body is, we're not going to be able to extract that nutrition from our gut and get it into our blood. So really to make the most out of our food and digestion, we need to have good gut health. The second one is the fact that 70% of our immune system lives in the gut. So, you know, we certainly have seen it with COVID-19. People who have better gut health, if they do get COVID-19, they're a much lower risk of becoming severely unwell with it and needing to go to hospital, etc. So we know, and the same thing we actually see with cold and flu viruses, we know that gut health is inherent to um, a robust immune system. But it's really this third element that's brought the fame and the excitement to gut health. And it's the fact that we contain these trillions of bacteria in the gut and these bacteria I think a lot of your listeners will know the gut microbiome that's just the sciencey name which is this community of not just the bacteria but also the chemicals that they produce and we also have things like beneficial viruses and fungi and and um, parasites that which actually synergistically live together in our gut. And they're doing so much for us. They're impacting our mental health, they're impacting our hormonal health, um, you know, many other factors which we could go on and I'm sure we'll touch on. Absolutely. A whole... I guess, whole body-wide experience in terms of why it's so important, like our mood, our immunity, um, even, you know, it impacts things like weight loss as well, which again, I'm sure we could do an entire another podcast on, but I'm sure just from listening to the potty, our listeners know that it's important. So what I'd love from you is some of the latest research in the science. So we can geek out a little bit in terms of what's coming straight out of the lab, because you really are a clinician on the ground, but you're also a researcher in the lab, which I absolutely love. So what is a little small piece of research that's hot off the press that you can share with our listeners today around gut health? Yeah, look, I mean, in our own lab, we've literally just yesterday started to unblind a clinical trial we've been running, looking at trying to understand why some people get bloated when they eat certain foods like wheat, garlic, uh, onions and other people don't get bloated and what we did is we put people through these blinded trials and identified and took samples of things like what types of bacteria they had in their gut as well as how sensitive their their gut lining actually is um, so we're start I can't release the results yet but oh you know watch this space we're starting to understand more about this area of personalization um, so it's certainly not ready for commercial commercialization yet um, but we are getting 
you know, a wealth of understanding as to why different people react to food in different ways. So I think that's a really exciting one. Another study we've got, again, this one is still um, being recruited for, so I can't share any results. But we do have preliminary data, which is really exciting, and it's looking at food additives in people with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Mm -hmm. so specifically Crohn's disease. Um, Now, we know that there has been... You know, there's like over 300 food additives that have been classified as grass, so generally regarded as safe, so they're allowed to be used in our food supply. But actually, a lot of that safety testing of these food additives was done before we understood about the importance of our gut microbiome. Mm. So it was done looking at like human cells and not looking at the bacterial component. Um, so actually, the European Food Safety Authority are calling for researchers to retest the safety a lot of, of a lot of these food additives. Um, and, and that's one of the things that we're looking at, a group called emulsifiers, which is found in about 30% of processed foods. Um, so the, the preliminary data suggesting that it might not be very good for our gut microbiome, particularly if you're more susceptible uh, to things like inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, that's so exciting. I'm sure you've perked the interest of our listeners who may perhaps have inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease. Would that be, does the research sort of lead to people being diagnosed with that um, condition or more towards reducing flares that they might have if they've already got the condition? Yeah, that's a really good one. So we're we're actually looking at people who've already been diagnosed mm-hmm. with um, inflammatory bowel disease. So looking at reducing uh, flares and actually we're, we're um, including people who actually have active disease. So looking at whether we can take these out of their diet and that can actually get them into remission. So as a treatment, um, which I think is really exciting because historically it's very much just been a drug-led sort of condition Mm. so Mm. you know only drugs could get you your disease from active to remission so you know watch this space but I think we know from observational studies where we look at large populations of people who develop inflammatory bowel disease and there is some trends towards people having probably more of these food additives in their diet so it's too early to say uh, but it does suggest I think from from the you know preliminary evidence out there that you know, if you have someone in your family with with inflammatory bowel disease and you are genetically susceptible to it, it might be even more important for you to just be cautious of the amount of um, of these ultra processed foods which contain food uh, additives in them. Yeah, that's fascinating. So exciting! Such an exciting time to be a dietitian in this sort of gut health space, isn't it? Absolutely. I um I love. The research side of things, but equally, you know, I love seeing patients one on one. So, um, yeah, I feel very lucky to to get both of them. Amazing. And if anyone was interested in a lot of this research coming out of the lab, particularly you mentioned King's, you know, college does so much research in the gut health space. Is there like a website they can listen to? Do they have a podcast? How do they disseminate some of these new research findings? Yeah, look, Leanna, it's um, a bit of a bugbear of mine, and that's why I you know, went from full-time research to doing more public engagement work because there is just this real lack of science translation um, not just in the UK I think pretty much you know around the world where you know we tend to keep our research kind of locked up Mm. and we publish it in scientific papers but often you need subscriptions to those journals so they can be quite hard to access so yeah I'm very passionate about trying at like translating that science into you know, tangible take home for people to be able to implement in their, you know, their daily lives. So there isn't really a website um, or, you know, a, a podcast 
Psy Lead, you know, that's run by Kings that helps translate that research. Uh, I think it's a case of, you know, following people on social media who I guess are scientists who who do have access to, to that data. Mm. Uh, but hopefully times will be changing and maybe, you know, we will we will have more of a translatable website or podcast in the future. Amazing. And I'm going to be extra cheeky. And besides yourself, of course, who I'm sure that you're the gut health doctor on Instagram. Or did I totally bundle that? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's absolutely right. <laughs> good, good, good. Besides yourself, of course, who I really hope all of our listeners are following, yep. um, anybody else or one top expert or scientist who actually does really well in the space around social media that would be well worth a follow in your books? Yeah, so I definitely would recommend um, Professor Kevin Whelan. Mm-hmm. He'd be a great one, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Irene Demidi. So they're two of my colleagues at King's who um, are active on social that are, are worth checking out as well. Amazing. I love that. Thank you so much. All right, moving on to leaky gut. <laughs> it's an area that has had a lot of attention over the last few years and it's still growing. And I think I feel like it's becoming more of an accepted sort of condition in the medical world. Whereas five years ago, 10 years ago, I'd ask doctors and they said, oh, no, no, it doesn't exist. It's a, you know, it's a holistic kind of functional medicine, you know, slap on diagnosis for people with symptoms. What do we know about leaky gut now? We certainly know it does exist and it is something that people with more inflammatory type conditions like celiac may experience when their gut certainly does become more permeable. Is it still the belief that it's only if you really have those inflammatory inflammatory type conditions or can people with altered gut microbiota like IBS sort of come down with this leakiness in their gut as well? Yeah, Leanne, that's, that's a really good one. So I think our understanding very much is that leaky gut is is more of a symptom of something else going on rather than it being a condition in its own right. So like you highlighted, if you have celiac disease, so an autoimmune condition to gluten and you ingest gluten, then your gut will become leaky. And what that means is just means it's permeable. So things that normally can't get from your gut into your bloodstream actually are allowed to transport and that can create more widespread inflammation in the body. Um, but we all we all can actually get a leaky gut from time to time. In fact, you know, there's a great study out there that showed people who, when they were really nervous, they had to they put them through a public speaking test. And those who were the most nervous actually had the most leaky gut uh, during that process. When they, you know, de-stressed after the speech, then their leaky gut kind of healed up. Similarly, we know that after a high fat meal, our gut becomes a little bit more permeable uh, to aspects. And similarly, uh, if we go on a marathon, a really long run, our gut also becomes a little bit leaky. So it's not necessarily the black and white term that I think um, it may have been like pushed in, in blogs and, and in the functional medicine world, because like I said, we all get leaky gut from time to time. I think the issue uh, occurs when that leaky gut is is chronic, so it doesn't close up because there is something constantly irritating. For example, if you have celiac disease and you do get traces of gluten in your diet, then you can have this chronic um, leaky gut, which means that you're constantly getting bombarded with inflammatory markers in the body, and that can, again, cause that widespread inflammation. In terms of things like IBS, they have looked at uh, whether people do have more chronically leaky guts, and some people with IBS do, but not everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an area that certainly our research group and many other research groups are exploring, is that IBS is very heterogeneous. So it's very, there's many 
different types of IBS, even though we've got, you know, the main four, the constipation predominant, diarrhea predominant, mixed um, and the unspecified based on the stool samples, we know that within that categorization, I think there is a lot more for us to understand. So yes, certainly some people with IBS, but we know, again, if people gain, get on top of their IBS and manage their symptoms, then it seems that their leaky gut um, resolves. So again, highlighting that it's more of a symptom that something there's an underlying thing at play versus it being a condition in its own right. I think it's a really important point because I think it's really pushed in the functional medicine, I guess, world that it is a condition and that's the root cause of a lot of people's symptoms where it's just sort of, it's a symptom in itself of something else that's a root cause. Because I think the whole aspect of the functional medicine world or how they like to claim it's we get to the root cause of a lot of these conditions, which you shouldn't need to use medicine for, but a lot of these conditions should probably have a medical management, but also, you you know, a holistic management as well. So it's about working with a great healthcare team who really do understand the research and science, but also can work on that holistic whole body aspect as well. Because I'm sure that stress for a large part will play an impact on how prolonged that gut leakiness may be as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just getting a test done that shows that you've got leaky gut can actually make your leaky gut worse. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I think that there, there does tend to be um, this kind of over testing. And we we test with um, in one of in that a food additive trial at the moment, the leaky gut um, using these urine samples. We get people to ingest sugars and stuff like that, and it's really difficult to measure. Mm. Um, it's really invasive, and the tests aren't always that accurate. So I'd be a little bit cautious if anyone's asking you to pay big bucks to get your leakiness tested out mm-hmm. and really getting to the bottom of why your gut is a little bit a little bit more permeable versus that is the reason for all of your symptoms and then I guess on the same sort of functional medicine uh, diagnosis <laughs> train of thought, SIBO. Again, SIBO gets a lot of attention for being a reason why some people have all of this like bloating and acne and poor energy and brain fog. What is the best sort of evidence that we have at the moment for managing something like SIBO? Because it is legitimately, a, I guess, a medical condition. And a lot of people, you know, antibiotics is really, as far as I understand, one of the best management courses. But I guess a lot of people are very, they don't want to take medicine, they don't want to take antibiotics. Is there anything that we can do or get around if we do have a proper diagnosis of small intestinal bacteria overgrowth? Yeah, look, it's, it's a really interesting one. And I think the research is still trying to unpick um, SIBO versus IBS. So there seems to be quite a lot of overlap in terms of the symptoms. Uh, we know, I guess, you know, your listeners probably appreciate what SIBO is in terms of whether the bacteria in the small, in the large intestine, so the lower part of the intestine, actually have crawled up a little bit higher into the small intestine, which is much more sensitive. And therefore, when the bacteria, as they normally do, uh, ferment food, actually that creates more um, kind of activation in that small intestine and can cause, you know, the cramping, the diarrhea, the bloating and things like that. Um but what the researchers suggest is a lot of people who are diagnosed with IBS probably have um, SIBO or SIBO, however you want to, want to call it, um, and, and, and vice versa. So we do know that people uh, with um, SIBO seem to have, seem to react or get improvement from, from antibiotics, but actually the relapse rates are really quite high because we need to appreciate what is causing what is allowing those microbes to crawl up higher into that small intestine? 
Um, and yes, the antibiotics can kill them off, but if you don't call, you don't fix that underlying reason of why they're able to crawl up, they're just going to crawl back up again. So that's, again, why we see such high rates of relapse in people who have antibiotics. Um, so there's a little bit of evidence for taking certain types of dietary fibres alongside um, specific antibiotics like rifaximin seems to be the, the most uh, efficacious one for the SIBO. Um, and then also we know in terms of the dietary management, it is similar to IBS in terms of we do see good results for short-term low FODMAP diets because it's the same mechanism in terms of you starving those gut bacteria. And then thinking about what's causing it. We know people with, for example, poorly controlled diabetes are more likely to, to have um, SIBO. Uh, similarly, people who struggle with constipation historically, because that can mean that the bacteria kind of back up and are able to get um, kind of crawl up that little bit higher uh, if the bowels aren't moving in a very functional way. So getting on top of things like uh, constipation. And we know that some people have these prokinetics, which help kind of the emptying of their intestine as, as a medical management for preventing um, a relapse of, of SIBO. Yeah, wow. You just give me so much to think about. <laughs> I'm really upset that I, I asked you a little bit about a lot of conditions in this podcast and not just specifically all about one thing. <laughs> The nerd science part of me is like, why? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really exciting area. Exactly. Um, and I've got two more sort of, I guess, areas that I really wanted to get an update on compared to the last podcast that we did together. And one of them is really around the gene testing and that personalization for nutrition. So you mentioned that a little bit earlier, and it's a really exciting, I guess, time if we're actually able to personalize nutrition to our genes. Are we there yet? Because there's a lot more companies coming online offering these gene testing, whether you do a bit of a saliva kit, you send it back in the mail, that sort of thing. And they're not inexpensive either. And then you get this report back and it tells you what the bacteria sort of makeup is with your genes and that sort of thing. But are we there yet in terms of then being able to personalize our diet to what these genes are telling us? Because a lot of these companies are working with a dietitian or a nutritionist or a naturopath on their staff, and they're actually advising the clients with their results alongside meal plans as well. Yeah, look, Leanne, like you said, it's an incredibly exciting area, um, but sadly, we are just not there yet. Um, so there's the two different, I guess, types of personalization. One is around our genetic um, material, like the human genetics, and one is around the bacterial genetics. Mm. So in terms of the human genetics, we know that that's not enough to predict how we respond to different foods. Um, there are a few genes that we carry which, you know, are quite good at predicting how we respond to things like caffeine, for example, if we're fast metabolizers or slow metabolizers, mm -hmm. but certainly not overall dietary patterns and how, you know, we respond to, to dietary sugars or carbs and fats and all of that sort of stuff. So in terms of the human genetics, we're certainly not there. And I don't think we'll ever be fully there because it's not enough in its own right um, to be able to explain how our body responds to certain things. Similarly, with the, the bacterial, the gut microbiome component, um, we're not there yet either, even though there is many companies, including, uh, you know, companies that are attached with, with researchers, um, which are claiming that they can help you know, predict how we'll respond to different foods based on our, our gut microbiome. But a really great paper from some of my colleagues of King's came out um, recently and showed that the gut microbiome component seemed to explain, I think it was about 6% of our response to 
uh, high fat foods, how our body um, kind of metabolize that. And that's only 6%. So it's such a teeny, teeny amount. And the reason for why we're, we're not there yet is because we still haven't named you know, so many uh, microorganisms that live in our gut. We don't know who lives there. We don't know what they do. And then we're that's just talking about the bacterial component. But at the start of the podcast, I mentioned about we have the uh, viral component, we call that the virome. We have the um, fungal component, we call that the microbiome. So all these other areas of microorganisms, which actually we don't, we haven't sequenced yet. We haven't really identified how they interact with the bacterial component. So I think, yes, eventually, probably in five, 10 years, we will get to awards a more, you know, personalized nutrition process through um, human combining things that like human uh, genomics, as well as the bacterial and, and the uh, viral and the microbiome genomics. Um, but we're certainly not there yet. So I would say, if you've got all the money in the world, hey, you know, you can do it. I'm not going to say it's, you know, it's not an interesting thing, but it's certainly not a full picture. And people see me in clinic all the time. They've paid a lot of money for these tests. I look at them and go, it's interesting, but you know what's not going to change my clinical recommendations for your diet at the moment. So, um, yeah, that's kind of currently where the evidence is at. Fascinating. Yeah. And it's amazing that it really does take that long for the research to come alive. Like you said, five to 10 years, which I think is such a crazy thing to think where I might be in 10 years time or like Mia will be an 11 year old in 10 years time. Like I'll have a kid in what, nearly high school by then. And so will you. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And there is a stat, I think it says that from, from research to get translated from the bench to actually evidence-based guidelines so the medical guidelines out there it's 17 years on average uh so there you know it's slow going it's slow going um but you know i think with a lot of uh, um researchers kind of getting more into this scientific translation we can help speed that up a little bit but you know clinical trials take a long long time so we need to be realistic with that so i think we could probably get it down like i said maybe you know to five to ten years time yeah, and I think following practitioners like yourself and really research science-based people online is the best way to go to find out about these things really regularly. Because as you said, by the time it hits the scientific journals, by the time that the key people in the health industries and the decision-making policy makers find out about it, then to then write that into the guidelines, then for practitioners to adopt it. Like it's amazing how many gastroenterologists I used to work with five years ago when I was working in the gastro wards at the hospital who still weren't up to date with recommending their IBS clients to see a dietitian. It was funny how hard we had to push for that or for dietetics to get linked into the gastro clinics as well, even five, six years ago, um, because it still hadn't translated yet how important the, the diet and the nutrition and the lifestyle side of things were to gut health. Yeah, look, absolutely. But also, I think we do need to be a little bit savvy around because there are some researchers who are working for companies with hidden agendas. Very um, true. So, you know, they may be kind of pushing you know, certain products that aren't ready for commercialization, according to the, the research. So it's good to check the independence, I think, of, of who you're getting the advice from. Very true, very true. And then you did a very interesting, almost teasing post the other day on your Instagram. And I was like, oh, I have to ask Megan more about this. And you were saying that there's um, some exciting research around sweetness, particularly sucralose. So can you let us in in the big secret or the little secret regarding that? Because I do
do get a lot of clients who say, will the occasional diet coke harm my gut microbiome? Or um, is it okay to use a little bit of artificial sweetener in my coffee if that's what I prefer? Yeah, look, that's a really great question and certainly one that I uh, constantly get asked as well. So just uh, this month, uh, a paper in Cell, which is you know a really renowned journal, came out highlighting that some types of sweeteners, including aspartame and sucralose, if they were given every day for two weeks um, in, in these participants, they showed that they those participants uh, had a dysfunctional response to glucose to sugar when they actually did ingest it. So it did kind of allude to the fact that they're not as kind of innocent as I think we're led to believe that oh sweeteners we're not absorbing them therefore that we can have as much of them as we want so we are starting to get um you know bits of research coming through showing that they are impacting uh our body and how we actually metabolize things like sugar when we do ingest sugar so you know I think the advice at the moment certainly in my opinion would be you don't need to think of it as a poison Um, And if you want to have small amounts occasionally, that's probably going to be okay in the the context of a very balanced diet. But if you are having sweeteners on a day-to-day basis and you are starting to notice that actually you do get more sweet cravings, because that's something that LSAT studies have shown, that the more you start to use sweeteners, the more your sweet intensity requirement is heightened Mm -hmm. because you get used to it and then you want more and more. and other studies have shown that actually it might make you crave uh, and overconsume, um, you know, the next day if, if you are having a lot of sweeteners. Uh, so just being cautious of some of these other effects that sweeteners can result. And another paper a couple of months came out um, showing that people who had sweeteners uh, seemed to be at high risk of things like cardiovascular heart disease. Um, and they did adjust for things like other diets, uh, diet and lifestyle factors and smoking and things like that. Um, but I, th- I think it's not a case of, OK, we should all just go back and have loads of sugar. Mm. Because obviously sugar has, has added sugars have in large amounts has negative effects as well. But I think it's, yeah, everyone just being a little bit more aware that, hey, look, we might need to look at how much we're having of these. They're not as innocent as we probably initially thought. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I'm interrupting this podcast to bring you a healthy break. In this busy world, women struggle to prioritize their health and they constantly find themselves frustrated with a lack of results. My premium coaching program, Lean Gut Mind Method, provides expertise, personalization and a proven system of tools so that women find themselves empowered to live their best lives in a body that they choose. If you're a female who struggles with weight loss, emotional eating and poor gut health and you're ready to change once and for all, let me and my team help you. Lean Gutman Method is the last nutrition program you will ever need to invest in and the first program you will see lasting results from. Let me and my team show you the way. Apply for my premium one-on-one 12-week coaching program at www.leangutmindmethod.com. And then what about like natural based sweeteners? We've got the artificial ones. And I think a lot of people, I hope a lot of people are sort of having them in moderation. You know, it's very rare that we meet clients these days who are still drinking two, three liters of, you know, Diet Coke a day. Certainly they do exist. But I think um, particularly in the realm that you and I sort of work at, we work with a lot of, you know, I would like to call them the worried world. They're doing most of the things right. They just sort of want a little bit of guidance here or there versus when I used to work back in the hospital and say the bariatric 
pediatric clinic, you know, I would see a lot more of that overconsumption. But a lot of the clients that I work with are really utilizing a little bit of the natural based sweeteners. So the stevia or the monk fruit, have they been shown to be quite safe in the research and I guess neutral in terms of our gut bacteria? Yeah, so actually the the study also looked at stevia um, in in cell and they showed that it didn't seem to have that negative impact on our glucose metabolism, so how we metabolize sugars Mm -hmm. after the intervention, but it did change the gut microbiome somewhat. And the changes weren't necessarily quantified as what that meant for clinical practice. Was it really bad changes? Mm -hmm. Was it creating a lot of inflammation? Was it creating a lot of potential toxic metabolites? So I think it is quite early in terms of our understanding Mm. of of these kind of natural sweeteners. And, you know, we we do, I guess, generally have this understanding that, that natural means safe. But actually, if you think about, you know, about a quarter of the medications, really hardcore ones like morphine, actually are derived from plants. So just because they're, I guess, natural, doesn't always mean that they're safe. Um, but I would say probably better options to have at the moment. But again, if you're having large amounts of these these foods on a day-to-day basis, you might just want to think about the portions um, until we have more, I guess, solid evidence um, showing either way. Yeah, love that. All right, Megan, um, I feel like I've taken up so much of your brain knowledge capacity today and I can't thank you enough, but I really did want to just round off with a couple of quick listener questions that they've shot through. I've said I'm having Megan on the potty and they're very excited. And so this is sort of a as quick as you can, you don't really have to spend a whole lot of time answering this. If there's a quick right or wrong answer or yes, no, I'm more than, more than sort of happy with that. So the first one is, should you take a probiotic with a course of antibiotics? Yes. Uh, but it's not just any probiotic. You need to be very specific and match the right probiotic that's shown benefits because each probiotic actually does different things. So there's no point just taking any off the shelf and expecting your symptoms to improve. They're, they're all very specific kind of like medications in a way. Sure thing. And one of the, the lady that asked this question was taking antibiotics for mastitis. So a very, you know, very sort of needed in that way. Is there any particular strain that you would recommend for something like an antibiotic for mastitis? Yeah, so any antibiotic, there's two different types um, that I would recommend people take. So one is called Saccharomyces boulardii, and you would take that 5 billion units throughout your antibiotic period and for a week after. And the other type is Lactobacillus raminis, um, and you would, again, take that 5 billion units twice a day throughout your antibiotic period and for a week after. Um, and people are like, oh, my God, I couldn't recall all that. Don't worry, I've got more detail on the website. And if you've got my first book, um, Eat Yourself Healthy uh, in Australia or Love You Gut in the US, um, I've got those probate prescriptions written down for you. So don't stress. Amazing, amazing. And the first one that you mentioned, I like to just cheekily call it SB because it's so much easier to remember. (laughs) Wonderful. Next question from the listeners. Is coffee okay for gut health? Yes. Absolutely. We know that people who have coffee actually seem to have slightly more diverse range of gut bacteria, which is a good thing. If you do have a sensitive gut, however, like IBS, I would say go decaf uh, because we know the caffeine component of coffee can aggravate the gut and stimulate it as well as increasing stress hormone as well. So if you're a little bit more anxious, I'd go decaf. Definitely. Okay. And then third one, is dairy inflammatory and should we be drinking plant-based milk? So in, you know, moderate amounts, There is no evidence to suggest that dairy is inflammatory. We know that in large amounts, it might have some impacts, particularly in people who have acne, um, particularly things like skim milk. Uh, So I would say uh, 
I always recommend going fermented dairy where possible because the fermentation process from the from the bacteria actually does transform some of the proteins and the fats to make them more anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we don't need to completely cut out uh, milk in a diet. Absolutely not. I would go fermented dairy where you can. And then in terms of the plant-based ones, just be a little bit careful of the food additives in those plant-based milks um, because a lot of them actually do contain the emulsifiers that I mentioned. Uh, so maybe they're not as good as I guess we've been led to believe as well. And you mentioned in large amounts. Quantify that for me. So we're we talking like three or four milky coffees a day. Is that what we would consider a large amount of milk? Yeah, so the, one of the studies I was referring to actually looked at people who had more than 500 mils of milk a day. Um, okay, so about two cups. Yeah, so if you're having more than that, I would say, hey, can you switch out one cup and have – you know, like a live yogurt or a live kefir drink instead. And, you know, they, they taste great. So it's it's just getting a taste buds used to that that different variety as well. And our taste buds do change over time, don't they? Two weeks to be to be exact. Um, so, yeah, give yourself some credit. Go slow over two weeks and you, you'll uh, learn to love it. Yeah, suck it up. Keep, keep, keep on keeping on and two weeks later you'll be okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, second last question. Are food intolerance home test kits accurate? Absolutely not. I mean, the World Immunology Association have even come out saying, do not use these. IgG tests are completely invalid. They're a marker of actual tolerance so that we've ingested those foods uh, recently. So yeah, definitely not the way to go for food intolerances. Um, Leanne, as you know, we we recommend an evidence base uh, is the gold standard being this 3R process. So you would record what you're eating and your symptoms. And then if you see a correlation and often you need the support of a dietitian to identify that correlation, you would then restrict it for the period that the dietitian laid out. And then you would really importantly reintroduce to make sure that really was that particular food or that group that's causing the symptoms. And that's the gold standard we use in clinical practice. And the hardest part is that these food intolerance test kits are hundreds of dollars. I've seen some that are upwards of six, seven, eight hundred dollars and people would rather spend that money than go and see like a gut health specific dietitian who certainly is not charging eight hundred dollars in their clinic. <laughs> I know, and it, it ruins, the, the thing that upsets me is it ruins people's relationship with food and they, they cut it out and then their body actually can't like forgets how to metabolize it when they do ingest it and therefore they get symptoms when they do have it, you know, at a friend's party or something, and then that validates in their mind, oh, I must have an intolerance, and that's just not the case. So, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. I definitely recommend people steer clear of that. Yeah, and the worst part is it's always a healthy food. Like I've never seen a client bring me a food intolerance test kit that says don't have alcohol or don't have pieces of cake. (laughs) It's always like you're allergic to corn, you can't have um, couscous, you can't have capsicum, carrots are bad, eggs are bad. It's always the good stuff that we want for our gut, not, you know, not the ultra pro processed foods that we have to cut out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then final question, my gut is completely destroyed post-COVID. What is your number one tip, Megan, to get my gut back to normal? Yeah, look, our gut's favorite food is hands down plants um, because we know the component, one of the backbones of plants is dietary fiber. And dietary fiber is not just one type of fiber. There's close to 100 different types of fiber, which is where this concept of diversity comes into play. So we really need to be nourishing our gut with as many different types of plants from what I call the super six. We've got six different plant-based food groups. So people uh, who are listening to this, it's worth thinking about your diet um, from, from yesterday or even today and think, have I gotten something from each of the super six? If you haven't, then it might be a really great place to start because you might be kind of excluding some beneficial 
um, fertilizers for specific gut bacteria. So the super six are your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, your beans and your pulses, and your herbs and your spices. So trying to get something in um, most days from each of those groups is really kind of the best way, I think, to get your um, your gut back on track post-COVID. But go slow as well. Don't go from zero plants to 100 plants. You know, over a couple of weeks, uh, slowly start to include the increase the portions of each of those super six. Excellent advice. And is the research really still telling us about at least 30 per week in terms of diversity? That's what we're really aiming for? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that was just based off this one one study um, which showed that people who had at least 30, 30 different foods um, seem to do better. And I guess, you know, I've then seen that in clinical practice translate where 30 seems to be a number that's attainable. But mm. I certainly wouldn't recommend people kind of see it as black and white, like 30 is they've made it. I would mm-hmm. say keep going where you can. Yeah, don't I mean, stop there. Um, yeah, our ancestors used to have, you know, like 17 different plants a, a week. So, you know, it, it was just based off that one study, which I guess have translated to clinical practice that it seems to work. But let's keep pushing, I'd say. Amazing. And then to end the potty, your last big takeaway or take home message that you would like all of our listeners to remember and hopefully implement as well as the days and the weeks go on. Yeah, I would say the super six is probably a concept um, that I want people to remember because they can get the biggest gains from it. I think we all know we should be eating more fruit and veg, but actually we kind of neglected all of the super six groups. Uh, and the research shows that actually getting something from each category is quite important because they all contain different types of not just dietary fibres, but these other groups called phytochemicals, which again feed our gut bacteria. So think about the super six. Think, have you been missing one of the categories? Often legumes is one that people neglect and try and make an effort to just sneak in some into whatever you're having across the day. Yeah, we really need to make legumes sexy again, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. No, we need them and they're so inexpensive. You know, they're so affordable they're so they're just like i just grab like a tin of chickpeas or a tin of black beans off the shelf like they're ready to go they're you know a dollar a dollar ten per tin they're they're great absolutely and they can be really tasty i think we just haven't necessarily been taught how to cook with them very well something that your book does very wonderfully so please tell us about the new book i know it's just launched in the u.s for all of our um american-based listeners as well so give us a little bit of a rundown of what it contains and why we should buy it and some of the fabulous recipes inside yeah, look, so this was uh, off the back of my first book. So first book, it's a bit annoying. They always have two different names. So in the UK and Australia, my first book's called um, Eat Yourself Healthy, and it was called Love Your Gut in the US and Canada. So they always change by the countries. But that was really about how you can get on top of your digestive health. And then after that, you know, I had literally thousands, tens of thousands of, of people coming, okay, you know, really got on top of my IBS or my um, – my food intolerances, now I want kind of the next thing because I know that having a healthy gut can improve my skin health, my immune health, you know, my hormonal health, my metabolism. So what do I do? And that's essentially what the new book is all about, which is called um, Eat More, Live Well in Australia and uh, the UK. And it's called um, How to Eat More Plants in the US and Canada. Um, And yeah, essentially it goes through the scientific elements of it in terms of looking at these different axes, I call them the gut brain axis, the gut skin axis, so learning more and understanding the scientific element. But then there's always that translational element, which is probably um, three quarters of the book. So looking at, okay, what are the top 10 foods for the gut brain axis or the gut skin axis? And, you know, what are the 
the easy kind of hacks to get more plants and more of those super six into your diet. I've got many plans in there for busy people, for feasting families, for sensitive guts as well. So if you have a bit of a sensitive gut and think, well, actually, plants don't really agree with me, then definitely check that out because it helps train your gut to love plants. And I've been a clinician for the past 15 years, and there is yet to be a gut that I haven't been able to train to eat more plants. So don't think that you can't. You can reap the health benefits. It might just take you a little bit longer with a few little tweaks here and there. And then it's also got 80 gut-loving recipes um, you know, from really simple one-minute snack ideas uh, to, to um, recipes you can make in bulk and freeze, as well as kind of the midweek five, ten-minute sort of quick stir-fry recipes in that. Amazing. And I remember from the very first book I made your brownies. I'm sure they were like sweet potato, maybe they were black bean. Anyway, they were absolutely amazing. So I can definitely attest to the very, very tasty recipes. And one of your snacks was just sliced pear with, I think, almond butter on top and maybe some cacao nibs. So that was also very delicious and very easy to make. <laughs> yeah, look, we, we are all very busy. No one's got time to slave away in the kitchen for hours. And I'm certainly not a chef. So it is all about, I guess, the practical, really simple hacks to maximize um, not just the health, but also the taste and enjoyment of food because at the end of the day if it doesn't taste great we're not going to go back to it right yeah exactly so that book is available at, i'm assuming all leading bookstores i think i picked it up off, off amazon or booktopia or one of those online bookstores i'm sure it's sort of available in, in most where most people get their standard books right <laughs> absolutely yeah all good bookstores and obviously amazon across the world Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the podcast again a second time. We couldn't thank you enough. Um, I'm always so grateful to have such a you know amazing clinician such as yourself and give us your time for the podcast to help just spread some evidence-based advice for our listeners as well. So just before you scoot off, where can our listeners find you and follow you on social media if they don't already? Yeah, so I'm at the Gut Health Doctor and website is thegutthealthdoctor.com. Amazing. Thank you so much again. Thanks for having me.